Okay, well, um, this is a uh, midweek um, edition of Larry the Golf Guy. We typically, um, the last couple of months, have published uh, podcast episodes once a week. Um, and uh, we have previously been doing it once every other week, but we've been so fortunate to have so many good guests that we've been doing it once a week. Um, but this is a podcast I recorded a couple weeks ago that I wanted to get out before the end of the summer. So, um, you know, sort of a bonus midweek podcast. Um, and it is with an old friend, Luke Reese, um, who has written a wonderful golf book called One for the Memory Banks. Luke and I go way back to when we were both young associates um, many, many years ago uh, in the Chicago office of Latham Watkins. And Luke, after a few years, decided that uh, big law was not for him. He uh, then went to Europe um, and um, uh, ended up working for Wilson Sporting Goods where he had both golf and tennis in his portfolio. Luke was a very good um, college tennis player, but had no golf experience at all. Uh, but that soon changed because he met up with an old-time salesman at Wilson um, who uh, was, goes by the name of Bondi, um, who figures prominently, of course, in Luke's book. And Bondi introduced him to Lynx Golf, um, and, um, Luke from, um, from what started as an inauspicious beginning with a friend of his playing at Bally Bunyan, which was really his first golf experience. And it's a great story in the book. And we talk about that a little bit in the podcast, uh, goes from there and, and, and hooks up with Bondi as part of, um, their work together at Wilson. And they, uh, end up playing all over. Um, the UK, uh, Ireland, Wales, all these great links courses. And, and as you'll hear, uh, Luke becomes just smitten with the game. Um, and in particular, smitten with what I would call the UK version of the game, which is not just links courses, but match play um, and um, uh, lots of great matches described in the book with Bondies and others. Um, and we talk a little bit about that in the podcast as well. And I think you'll get the sense um, of how enthusiastic Luke is. Um, he's that way generally, and he's certainly that way about golf. Um, and I think that comes through um, on this podcast. Um, and then we talk a little bit about what he did after uh, his time at Wilson Um Started a private equity firm, worked with Peter Millar. He's working with an apparel company now. Um, so he's been very successful. Um, and um, But his enthusiasm for golf has never waned. And um, uh, again, you'll, you'll hopefully get that sense from talking, uh, from listening to him talk about his experiences in golf. So upcoming, um, Luke Reese, author of One for the Memory Banks, here on this edition of Larry the Golf Guy. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy, and I am really pleased to have an old friend um, going back all the way to our um, days starting together at uh, roughly the same time at Latham Watkins in Chicago, Luke Reese, who um, is now an author and he's done so many different things since we last talked uh, all those years ago at Latham. Luke, thank you so much for making time today. 
Larry, I appreciate that. It's nice actually getting to know you as Larry the golf guy as opposed to Larry the very smart and effective tax lawyer guy, okay, <laughs> which which is a nice thing to be, but probably not how you want to lead yourself into on cocktail parties. So exactly, I, I think so. the golf guy is probably uh, it's it's a low bar, I admit to uh, to uh, um, get higher than Larry the tax guy, but I think Larry the golf guy goes over Larry the tax guy by a lot. I didn't call you Larry the tax guy. I called you Larry the I, very. I know you were very kind. I, you're okay. you were very very generous and kind. I was being a little shorthanded, but. Um, so, so good to see you again um, and to chat with you about this stuff. And of course, we're going to um, get to the book, um, One for the Memory Banks, which is, if you haven't read it, just a fantastic golf book about um, Luke's experiences playing um, some of the great links courses in the UK and Ireland. But let's, before we get to that, let's kind of go back, uh, rewind the clock a little bit and uh, give people a little context for who you are, um, take us back um, to uh, where you grew up, which I think was in Newark, Ohio, if I'm remembering, right? And what was that like growing yeah. up there? Well, first of all, I mean, when you grow up in Newark, Ohio, you don't understand that there might be something better than Newark, Ohio. <laughs> and I have nothing against Newark, Ohio. It's a wonderful place. The people are wonderful. Um, I, um, But it's, it's not that far from Columbus, but it it could have been basically a lifetime away. Um, it was a long, long distance from anything else. Um, Newark is a great place, good education, uh, nice background. My parents were hardworking. Uh, I, I love a lot of people there, but I don't spend a lot of time going back. Understood. So, um, and you you go off to college at DePauw, um, but, yep. um, and, and, um, We've had um, a bunch of folks from Indiana on, um, some golf folks, uh, Steve Holler. Um, so we've uh, folks who've listened to this podcast are familiar with DePaul. Not you're not the first DePaul person we've had on the show. But what's um, was really interesting to me, and I kind of remembered this um, when I when I saw this uh, getting ready for this podcast. You took a few years off after your freshman year, um, and that seemed to be a significant. Um, uh, event in your life? Maybe tell folks about what made you do that and kind of what that experience with the Army was like. Well, for, first of all, I loved almost every day in the Army. And I'm, I'm one of the few people who can say things like that. I, I just reveled in it. Um, I, was, I partied too much as a freshman in college. And I, I had good grades, but my roommates flunked out. And I, I actually was, was, on, was on sort of an honor roll, but I wasn't really on an honor roll. Um, and, uh, you know, my roommates are still blaming me for things um, in their lives. But uh, the short answer is I, I decided, listen, I want to do something else. And I don't want to go be a ski bum. I don't want to go mess around for a year. And at the time, uh, the Iranians had a bunch of hostages and in um, in Tehran, and I thought, you know what, I should join the military, and I went in the military and uh, joined. Went to the Big Red One, got into military intelligence. Uh, I already spoke German fluently, um, and I had an absolute blast almost every single day. And I would say I didn't really have a bad day in the army. Um, wow. I love being there. You wake up at, at somewhere around five in the morning. And you start exercising and then you go eat a lunch, eat a bunch. And then you go read maps and figure out how to, you know, 
take care of the Russians when they're going to take when they're going to come in. And uh, comically, as we look at Ukraine and the war today, I look at all the weapons that they're using and all those old tanks and the things that they had. Those right. were like very, very modern back in 1982 right. and or 80. And they're very, very old right now. They're, they're put together with duct tape. But I was like, back then, we thought those were pretty impressive. And we were using old Vietnam era Jeeps and right. things like this. So right. for me, um, I got a chance to be in intelligence in, in, the, in a first infantry division and speak languages. My roommate is still in the government today. He was a German translator who learned French, taught me French, and that sort of started my interest in uh, adding more languages to my life. And uh, so I've just had more opportunities come around as a result of that. And I think I've paid the army back in part because I pay a lot of taxes. So I'm, I'm generally speaking, I, I don't think I have to donate back to them. Okay. They're getting <laughs> a fair amount. So that's I think great. I love it. I love it. So so you're in Germany in the first infantry division, then you come back to college and you're kind of, your batteries are recharged, right? You're refreshed, right? Hey, well, it's, all, it's also, let's be honest, college is pretty darn easy um, yeah. after you've been in the army, okay? Yeah, it's sort I'm of, sure. a, you know, could you hand your paper on time? Hmm, let's think real hard about that. <laughs> could you wake up early and do your homework? I mean, I could, I could study and, and prepare for classes before the morning. So I would study at night, get ready. And then the next morning I'd wake up and reprep. Uh, it was, it was, a, it was, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, so school wasn't very hard. Law school at Michigan wasn't very hard. Um, so I, I found the rigors of that were, were actually just fantastic. I loved school after that. I loved, you know, getting grades and, and having fun and frankly, learning a ton. Um, so to me, it was just a, it was a great experience. I would advise any you know, I think, I think, you know, most boys, uh, and I'm not saying all, but most boys are sort of like barnyard animals. They're, you know, they're, they're looking down low, they're eating a piece of grass, and they're not looking up very far. Um, <laughs> I think that a lot of them would benefit from spending two to three years um, doing something else, serving right. or helping somebody else uh, before right. they actually go back into the real world. But that's, that's my own personal crusade, not something else. Well, that's no, good advice. So you you come back, um, and as you mentioned, you graduate. Uh, you mentioned the languages, your history and foreign languages. You know, major. Um, go to Michigan Law School um, and do obviously very well there. Um, so, let's talk a little bit about the law. So, what made you go to law school, and and then kind of what your experience was like? Uh, sort of what law practice, at least big firm law practice was like, as opposed to law school, because um, for people who haven't been through that experience, they're two different things, to be sure. Are you trying to put me back into therapy here, Larry? What's going on, man? What's I know that on? you've been okay. so successful. I, 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 there's no risk my, of that. My palms, my palms just got sweaty. No, there's okay. no risk of that. Okay. There's no, okay. there's no risk of me suddenly becoming a lawyer again. Okay. No, so here's, here's, the, here's the funny part. I would say um, first of all, if you're, you're a, a very good history student and you have really good grades, people think like, what are you going to do? Well, okay. I guess, I guess law school. I mean, that sort of seems like it's, it's, it's a very logical choice yeah. for I'm either going to go into business or I'm going to go to law school. And I went to law school and uh, you know, medical school wasn't, wasn't even a consideration. So that was sort of a, a straightforward decision. I thought the law school itself was I found more fascinating people 
more interesting people with whom I'm lifelong friends uh, that are, were just great to be around, great to be with. We both know Jack Henneman. Yeah, uh, we'll give sure. a plug for his his podcast. Oh, his um, podcast is great. His history podcast. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, we're basically Jack was one of those kind of guys. You and I both remember you had to sort of avoid him if you wanted to get work done because he could sit down and talk to you for you know 15 minutes about, you know, the latest Supreme court fiasco. Yeah, now, for sure. Let's not start on that topic. Either. Yeah. Okay. So going to law school was great. I think if I were re-scripting my life, which I do not want to do because I wouldn't change one bit, I would probably have rather been a small town prosecutor talking in front of a jury the whole yeah. time. I think yeah. I might have absolutely loved trying to win trials. Yeah. Um, and that would have been probably my skill set as opposed to drafting or doing other stuff or doing corporate work. I think the reality was I saw myself as coming in and being a business person. And I thought being a corporate finance lawyer was the closest place to be. And uh, I wound up at Latham Watkins. And I absolutely loved the people at Latham. I, there are many, but I wish I had liked my work as much as I liked the people. Um, <laughs> but it was essentially, I would walk in, say hello to a bunch of people, then sit down in a dentist chair and get my teeth drilled for about yeah. eight, eight to 12 hours. Right. Say hello to a bunch of people I really liked and then leave. Yeah. And it was just, it was miserable. And yeah. I, my seminal moments, I remember coming and, and I, I recount it briefly in the book was, me thinking, and I was so good at rotisserie baseball at the time. Yeah, yeah. And that was a that was like something that I really understood. And I thought, and at one point, I I asked myself a question: This guy cares as much about the law as I care, and about doing a great job on this transaction as I care about rotisserie baseball. I'm a dumbass. I'm the <laughs> one who shouldn't know this much about these. You know about what the Second, you know, second hitter for the Cubs is going to do when you know runners are in, you know, runners right. are on third, second and third, and it's a two to one, two and one count. That's not what my life was about, and I was the imposter. I was the one who was living this stupid life and not actually giving anybody my full passion. Yeah. And the moment I switched and started selling things to people, it all clicked. And the whole world was like, so this is what I was put on this earth to do, was to go run businesses. And I had a blast. I just had nothing but fun after that. So I loved Latham. I respected the people there. As you know, one of the characters from the book is a Latham attorney. Yeah. Uh, and there were plenty of people that I truly enjoyed. And, uh, and But at the same time, I'm pretty thrilled that I didn't have to spend a large part of my life doing it. Understood and and totally agree. So you have this epiphany, uh, you know, that this is not really for you. I think, I mean, you recounted in the book um, in a closing room on a mega deal. And it's a wonderful passage of, you know, a book that has nothing but wonderful things in it to read, which we'll get to. But so you so you sort of say, I got to make a change. And you go from associate at Big law, uh, Latham and Watkins. To what? Selling handlebars in German. Okay. Before that, I want to brag for one second, please. So I, I'm the Jamoke who was standing there handing signature pages to Henry Kravis 
for the RJR Nabisco transaction. Right. Okay. And they popped the champagne cork, and I was a former tennis player. The champagne cork went it hit the ceiling, and as it came down, I reached out, casually caught it, and stuck it in my pocket. So I was like, I have the champagne cork that they, <laughs> they blew off for the RJR Nabisco <laughs> transaction. And I was like, and nobody even noticed except one guy across the room went, looked at me and went, those were fast hands. Like you have quick hands. I'm like, oh, I was pretty good at the net. Um, so anyway, dumb story. So I go to sell handlebars and I basically, the guy, I walked in and the first guy explains to me, okay, uh, these handlebars cost $189 retail. They're, you know, in rough terms are $75 wholesale. I said, what do they cost to make? And he goes, well, we use this whole thing. It costs about $11. So it's like, wow, we're making a lot of money on these things. What if we actually found all the guys with dirt under their fingernails who can't afford them and gave them all to them and got them to like sort of drive it? And at the time, there was a guy named Greg Lamont who was working for Scott. And yeah. uh, that was the big powerhouse. And we came in and using this strategy and basically knocked Scott out of the market wow. in nine out of 10. So Profile just took over. And in a very brief period, the guy from Profile uh, and I agreed that he would pay me X and I'd pay Y because I, I negotiated a fairly good contract with him because I said, I'll take a low base and I'll take a percentage of sales. And uh, he didn't quite figure out what that meant. And uh, I grew sales. I tripled the entire company sales in one year. And wow. so it wound up being a good deal. And then, I, then when he said, listen, can I buy you out? I'm like, yes, here's the amount. So we did. And uh, then I went to Wilson and I was uh, put in charge of, and I looked at Wilson, and I went, you know, I don't mean to sound like I'm giving trade secrets here, but like, wait, so we charge $299 for this thing and it costs uh, 18 bucks to make. Let's give a bunch of these out to all the teaching pros. And uh, right, right. essentially same strategy, same results. And uh, we, we sort of skyrocketed in sales, skyrocketed in profitability. And uh, that was sort of the, that was the beginning of, of the of the business career, essentially, and then I, then they put me in charge. So. Awesome. So that so uh, and I was and you're you're sitting there as you're at Wilson. You're you know doing I think doing both tennis and golf. And you know you mentioned tennis. You were um, played tennis in college. You experienced tennis, but golf is new to you. And I think one of the one of the things that you paint such a wonderful picture of in the book is. I think it's your first experience with golf, which is at, you know, hallowed ground, uh, Bally Bunyan um, in, in Southwest Ireland, one of the great links courses in the world. And um, let's talk a little about that. Cause that one, I mean, there's so many parts of the book that are vivid for me. Cause I, Bally Bunyan is one of the, you've you played so many more courses than I have, but Bally Bunyan is one of the ones that I have played. And I'm just, trying to imagine what it's like to play in a barber jacket um, in those conditions. So talk to us what that was like as your initial um, kind of golf experience. Okay. So, so first of all, uh, si since you're also Larry, the tax guy, um, my, the guy in the book is George Van Kula. Okay. Who was oh, a, okay. Who yeah, was sure. I remember George. So, yeah, so yeah. it happens. So I just didn't want to corrupt the book by putting too many names in there. Sure. Uh, sure. So it's, it's, it's George Van Kula, who's now a general counsel at, at some company in Philadelphia. Yeah. And I speak with him somewhat regularly. Yeah. Um, 
But basically, George was a good athlete. He was a hockey player. And he goes, hey, uh, let's, you, you know, you, Kathy, and, and you, my former wife, and let's all get together and go to Southwest Island before you start your new job. And I was like, great, love to. And he goes, and we'll go play, you know, ballet something. And I'm like, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. It, 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 it didn't register. And I went, great. Um, so I said, do they have rental clubs there? Do they have this? You're like, but I mean, I didn't play golf. I really didn't. And so I get there and I said, well, it's cold. It's going to be cold out here. Yeah. And I said, so I'll, I'll bring a barber jacket to make sure that like I'm not cold when I play. I didn't understand anything. I mean, I had no business being where I was. And I get out, I have a caddy and I take my first swing in this, you know, this barber jacket. And I mean, the ball went right of right of right. This was, this was like, this was a Rush Limbaugh at extreme levels. Okay. <laughs> and I'm out there hitting this thing and I'm like, Oh my God, I don't think I'll ever hit a straight shot out here. Like there's no chance. It's not going to work. And the, it was just a miserable round for everybody. Fortunately, I'm fast. As you might guess, I'm somewhat frenetic. Um, and I, so I wasn't, I didn't force anybody to slow down and I'm smart enough to know when to pick up the ball and go, I'm out. You guys don't need to have me play. So I wasn't that guy who was going to force anybody into a, what at the time would have been a five hour round. I wasn't even going to force a three-hour round on somebody. I'm going to hit, take three quick swings, drop it at the 150 hit, and keep moving. So it was a miserable experience. I honestly, at the end of it, I would not have been surprised if I never touched a golf club again, with one exception. I was about to start a job that was a tennis company that had a golf division. Right. And my territory was about to start growing in golf. And I'm like, I better understand it. And when I left Latham, I became a triathlete because I was selling, you know, aerodynamic handlebars. And right, I thought, right. I have to become a golfer and I've got to at least be respectable. So that was just like this horrendous experience. Um, I think if you read it, the book, it, it'll make you laugh a little bit more. But, you know, that was when my caddy turned to me on, I think about hole 14 or 15, it just goes. After, you know, I hit a, one good shot. And he goes, after such a fine shot, I'd probably quit, you know. <laughs> I mean, and I was yeah. like, valid point, dude. Here, you take my bag. You take the money. Go on in. Here, I'm paying you. Take it in. Leave it. Go to the bar. I'll walk with my friend in for the rest of the time, but I'm not going to force you to stay out here. Because I think it was just, he spent a lot of time. And I also had a pair of khakis on, okay? Like those classic, you know, doctors type, yeah, you know, 1990 yeah. type khakis. The water had soaked all the way oh. up to my knees. So I was walking with a ring of water to my knees. Oh. It was freezing cold. It was windy. It was blowing. It was just horrendous. And George laughs because he read the chapter. And when he read the book, he's like, I remember that was one of the worst days of golf, worst days of weather I've ever played golf in, in my life. And he's like, I still can't believe that was like your first day. And I was like, yeah, it was like my fifth time to play golf. It was fifth, It was one of the first times I'd ever played 18 holes. Okay. Well, and, and so, to play it there, I mean, you know, and I, uh, enough people who listen to this podcast have, have played it, I'm sure, because we have pretty avid golfers who listen. But for those who have, I mean, Bally Bunyan is just got these up and down and huge dunes. And I mean, you can be you know, have played for 30 years and be a low single digit handicap. And when that wind starts to blow on that golf course, that is a hard, hard golf course. So I can't even fathom what it would be like for someone who barely has played at all. I mean, 
let alone how you were retired. I mean, but uh, unbelievable. Well, we it was it was actually and, and as you know, I sort of live life with a smile. So <laughs> I do. wasn't ever really upset about it. I was like, this is actually sort of interesting. Like, this is sort of cool if it weren't so miserable. OK, and if right. I weren't actually making somebody else miserable as my caddy. But right. I never was mean. I never slammed a club. Oh, sure I never not. sort of yeah. got into trouble. Yeah. And I just, I just thought, okay, this is what it is. And I, and I felt so bad for my caddy because it was like he could have had a real golfer that day, but he had me. And that was it. So <laughs> anyway, so that's so that that sort of continued on. Yeah. And then, um, you know, just briefly. Yeah. I, as I left, I thought, okay, I better go figure out like a little bit about golf when I went, when I actually started. Yeah, Cause you I mean, just started. right. To just to emphasize what you're saying. I mean, you've got tennis and golf tennis, you know, golf, you don't know at all. And that's a big part of your portfolio. And so I asked a guy and the guy says, let me teach you a selling grip. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So I have the most beautiful, I mean, Larry, my hands look so gorgeous right now on my selling grip. My actual grip is a little further apart. Okay. Uh, and I, I just developed, but the guy's like, but do yourself a favor. Just if you ever touch a, touch a club, just put it like this briefly and hand, hand it to him. Don't talk. Don't hold it too long because they'll know you're a fraud. And, uh, and then I went to you know, somebody and he sort of helped me a little bit. And that was it. But that brings me to the main character of the book. Yeah, Alan please Bond. do. Yes, go so ahead. I'm, I'm now roughly five to six days into this company. And I'm this young kid. And I'm energetic and I've already done some things that are like, I've already gotten some very good things going in my export markets, uh, which were, you know, were, were like more of the tennis markets. And uh, as I'm pushing along, I'm like, okay, I gotta figure out golf. So I'm standing up in the showroom and I'm just using like an eight iron and I'm just hitting, hitting like a spot on the floor. Yeah. And I turned at the beginning of the meeting, before the meeting gets started, I turned and I said, hey, uh, Mr. Bond, and this was guy, he was the grizzled, like that just absolutely everybody respected him. Everybody loved him. He was the senior sales manager from the UK. And he's a low handicap. And I said, Mr. Bond, uh, how, um, what, what do you think of my swing? And, and he stops. And he <laughs> And the room goes silent. And he puts his coffee cup down. And he says, young man, I've got some advice for you. And I'm like, awesome. I'm about to have it. And this guy had that. He's, he's Sean Connery. He yeah. is Winston Churchill. I mean, he has presence. presence and he's yeah. articulate as hell. And he goes, never. And I repeat, never. Hold a club at that end in front of an account or they'll know you know nothing about golf. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and then, then he goes into, don't waggle. Don't address the ball. Don't do this. He says, take the club, explain to him why it's good and hand it to him. And he's holding his fingers, like touching it, like barely touching the head of the club, hand it to him that way and tell them why it's good. And then tell them what the price is. And you can use your free hand to write down orders, okay? And the whole place goes nuts. I mean, it's just like, and I'm like, okay, Bondi could control a room. He could throw a quip at somebody. Yeah. And that probably could have been 
the last time he and I ever talked. It was one of those, like, if I, if I were not the kind of guy who sort of laughs at myself about that, I might have been really upset. A week later, I get a package. And it's Donald Steele's classic links of the UK. Yeah. And that book is just a, is, is, is a Bible to me. And I get it and I open it up and there's a note from Bondi and his name is Alan Bond and his nickname was Bondi. And it basically says, young man, go learn how to give a golf swing and I'll take you to some of these courses and teach you about real golf. Awesome. And it was like, and it was like, okay, he clearly knew I could sell and he clearly knew I could do other things. And I was just this young kid who had started the company. Now, he probably made a pretty good choice in his, in his career because uh, right. you know, within a year, I was his boss's boss's boss. But right. at the same right. time, we just had a, then we started playing together. And we started playing before I ever became his boss. And he would take me out and have me play golf because I played fast. And within about six months, I was, I was probably an 18 handicap. And within you know, nine months, I was probably about a 15 or so. so. And I just couldn't putt. But everything else was was coming i could hit the ball pretty well and uh i just you know didn't have any feel around the greens at all and you know he and i then just basically took donald Steele's book and every free moment we got when we were up in scotland or in england we would duck out at night and go try to play one and we both played so fast we played probably 70 or 80 courses together over a few wow years. Wow. I mean, so fast and you've got the light, you know, that, you know, because of your northern latitude, you can play late into the evenings and stuff. And um, that is awesome. Um, And for people, and I know you know this, but for people who haven't, aren't as familiar with playing in the UK, it's so different in so many ways um, than playing in the US. And we'll talk about some of those things. But one of the things is access. I mean, even the most hallowed private courses in the uk if you write ahead of time or you know you can sort of get on them and and a lot of them you know are not even that hard to get on and stuff as opposed to this country and i know you've played so many courses here too but you're not walking on cyprus tomorrow and playing it so i mean it's it's uh it's a very different atmosphere so you really got to play just a tremendous selection of courses yeah and 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 if you're showing up at 6 30 at six o'clock at night sort of walking on you're you're finding an assistant pro who's about to close the shop and you're handing him 30 pounds and you're just walking out and the two of us would sling our bags over our shoulder grab a bottle of water and we knew that if we started at 5 30 at night everybody else was going to gather after a meeting go to the bar and we thought well we'll go do this and we'll meet them all for dinner and we'd have dinner we'd set eight o'clock and everybody would meet at eight and so other people would go back and mess around. Bonnie and I'd go play 18. And we did this all over. And I think the public access to the UK courses, to the great courses, is a fundamental difference between theirs. They don't have country clubs. Right. Or fundamental. There are a few. There are a few. And right. they don't have a concept of exclusivity. The concept right. is golf is a game for all of us. Right. And you're separated more by whether you're a jerk and a good person than whether you're wealthy or not. Um, right. The amount of wealth you have really has very little to do with it. It's the amount of golf IQ you have that's sort of, it's a little bit like skiing in Jackson Hole. You know, 
you could be a billionaire, but if you can't ski, you got no status. Okay. You know, it's just, uh, you might as well go to Aspen. You might as well go to Aspen then. Okay. I just took my shot. I gotta be careful what I say. Okay. We don't have a, that's right. We'll, we'll make sure we excise that from all the skiers who might listen. Um, talk, let's, I mean, and, and you, you're, let's talk about some of the different aspects of Lynx golf. We've talked about the access part, but it's so different, right? I mean, you yeah. know, it's a ground game. You've got the elements. It's not as, you know, finely manicured. It's much more natural. I mean, it's really different than the U.S. horses, right? It's a completely different experience. And I think that playing it from, you know, from the tee all the way through the green, it's it's just a it, they're, they're, they share one thing, a couple things in common. You got clubs, you got people, and you got balls. That's about it. Um, you're playing faster because it's usually cold and windy. Right. You are rarely counting score. You're counting a match. So nobody ever, after you've lost a hole or won a hole, nobody bothers to putt out. Okay, right. you're picking up the ball and you go. Somebody says, "What'd you shoot?" And you're like, "I, I won four and three. This is all right. you talk about." You don't say, "I." Uh, I shot a 78 or this. It's just, it's not, you don't do it for that reason. Um, they get their handicaps playing in, in monthly and weekly medals on Saturday morning for strokes. So that's also why you don't want to play a guy in the UK because up until recently when, they, when we went to the same system, those guys actually have a handicap of what they are. It's the average of what they are because it's the average of what they actually put in the hole we're an average of what we theoretically could be on our best day. Right. Okay? That's right. That's right. You know, our handicap is a reflection of, okay, 10 of my best 20. And by the way, there are a whole bunch of three footers that I didn't bother to knock. Right. Put okay? out. Right. You know? Exactly. And, and, and I've never missed a three footer, neither of you, Larry, but somebody probably <laughs> has. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is why, you know, a five handicap does not play a five handicap in the UK. They'll take your money every day. Um, yeah. you know, in the U.S. But so I just love playing. And I think that the wind is also it it flips on you and you think, oh, well, the downhole downwind holes are easier. Like, actually, you can't stop the ball on the green. Exactly. You know? right. And into the wind, they could be really tough. But the side winds get tough. And, and, and you, know, you play a course like a Port Marnock. Every single hole has a different wind orientation. Right. And that's part of the genius of it. It's like you've got right. to step up and adjust everywhere you play. And I think that's sort of the neat, you know, the, the neat thing about a lot of these courses is they really factor the wind in. I think we all watched the Open this last week with no wind, basically. Okay. Right, or a right. little it's bit of wind on Thursday. Friday very little, though. Very little. It, it, very little. It affected scores by a couple of strokes on Thursday and Friday. And then there wasn't enough wind, but you saw – just how difficult it was for these guys to actually get accessible pin positions because the ball doesn't hit and stop. It right. rolls. And that's what makes it so much fun. It's just, a, you know, there's a lot of creativity involved. For sure. And the other thing, you know, you don't see a bunch of electric carts at, at UK golf courses either. It's a walking culture, right? It's a walking culture. It's a carry. I would say this. There's a carrying culture. There's a maybe push a trolley collar or push, you know, those easy go cards, the little, the little automatic carts that people have. A lot of guys have those these days. Um, at the big resort courses, there's a very caddy driven culture, but it's right. walking. And yeah. frankly, that's nice. And, and oh, totally you know, agree. And, you know, Larry, 
sometimes people will ask us like, what'd you talk about at the course? You're like, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't really remember. And you're like, but we had a great time with each other. And we're not talking about deep topics. And we're just out talking about who's about to hit what shot? Who's going to do this thing? Do I get a stroke here? Are you in trouble? Is this happening? That's all that's going through my mind the entire time I'm walking down a golf course. I don't want to talk about work. I don't want to talk about other stuff. I want to go in and play. And so it's two and a half hours of yoga just uh, happens to be with a golf course. Uh, totally agree. So um, <clears throat> you played so many great courses. Um and this is a hard one to answer, I know. But I mean, if you had to pick one or, you know, both a course and a hole or whatever, what what sticks out the most in your mind that you think is the most memorable course you played or one that's your favorite or however you want to define it? it, it that is such a shockingly impossible answer. Uh, I, I almost couldn't even begin categorizing. Somebody asked me, like, my five favorite rock bands. So I'm like, I can't start with that. You know, I could probably put the Beatles and the Dead, but I can't do that. I say Royal County Down is one of those courses that I'm dying to go back and play. Yeah. I haven't been there in probably five years. Um, and I just, I have these golden memories. And I think if you, you read the book about me playing there with Bondi and Angus, um, and it was just this magical moment. And I frankly, somehow it suits my game. I have a great round every time I play there. Wow. Um, I have a look like this where... I can almost hit an OB on both one and 18 at St. Andrews because I'm so oh, nervous. Oh, come on. You but, couldn't go that you know, far left off no, one. On, I, I, I said almost. I said almost. Yeah. I didn't. That, 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 only only but, Ian Baker Finch can do that. You can't do that. <laughs> there we go. No, no, no. But but I've, <clears> I've hit some pretty bad shots at the old course. And and I've, I've since gotten played it enough times so that I'm actually no longer bad there. But I say Royal County Down is one of those. I live. I have a house at Dornick. And so oh, I you live, have a, oh, um, oh, wait a sec. We're going to oh, make sure okay. I'm, 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 wait a sec. I'm taking notes okay. here. Okay. Okay. House hey, Dornick. Mean, okay. Yeah. You're Larry, the, you're Larry, the visiting guy now. Okay. I know. Uh, what I, you I am now. Um, I am now. Go uh, ahead. You, you, <laughs> listen, I mean, you could probably get, bring, I, bring back your old tax department. You get Mark Harris and some more others yeah. over there and you can come play exactly. with us. So, exactly. um, and, and he's been there multiple times, but so I live in Dornick. Um, so I play Dornick all the time so it's it's not fair for me to say that Dornick wouldn't be one of those courses it's just it's a little bit of my home course and I'm I'm lucky enough to be at Sunningdale Port Marnock and Dornick so I sort of I play a lot of golf um in the book itself if you go back and recreate a trip I would actually love to start at chapter one and spend about 25 days and actually just retrace the book yeah and just go back to all the courses Bonnie and I played and for those who are reading, um, the book, by the way, is not about me. It's about how I am going to get abused by Bondi at every single course. Um, I am just waiting for the guillotine to fall on my neck. And it basically does. Um, and you, you're going to have to read the book. And each chapter, you'll find a new way for Bondi to basically torment me in some manner. But something always happens. He always gets the bat last word. Uh, Bondi is the he's. He is, in fact, everybody's favorite person, um, but he's the kind of guy that at every course, there's a great memory for me where I can turn back and go, uh, 15, that's where Bondi closed me out here. Uh, oh, my gosh, I love, you know, Royal Dublin. That's where Bondi hit the five wood on, on at number 18. So things like that, um, 
I would say probably those would be my my memories of courses and what I'd want to do. And 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 again, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I mean, including uh, a particular royal course that he changed the name of to reflect the outcome of your match, right? <laughs> okay, so just so we're clear, the head professional at that course refers to it by that name. Okay, really? So is that right? Yeah. So so if you if you call the head professional and say he'll say. Are you an American? Have you read this book? So you want to come play Royals, blah, blah, blah. So, yes. And, and he laughed so hard when he read it. He's like, that is one of the funniest name changes. And it, if you, you know now, I mean, you know, you've read the book, how everything had to line up perfectly for that to happen. Okay. Totally, and it's just, totally. it's just one of those great moments. And when Bondi slid the scorecard across the table at dinner, I literally went Oh God, that's gonna stick for so long. <laughs> it's just like this is a permanent memory of my utter defeat on this golf course. So, so Royal Sank Ports, and it's a great track. Um, I don't and remember I, a lot of the last three holes because uh, I think I had my head down and I was muttering. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he sounds. I mean, what a character! I mean, he sounds like just the kind of guy that's like nails in a golf match. I mean, he just knows where to put the, the dagger in. And I mean, that's the sort of, you know, image yeah. I got. I mean, he's not, and, and to your point, I mean, it's the match play. You can tell just reading the book, it's the match play that gets him. It's not, he would probably be lost if he's playing in some stroke play tournament, but it's the one-on-one -on -one match play yeah. stuff that gets right. He, he wouldn't care about playing stroke play. If you put him in a golf cart and put him over in Florida, he just look around and just go, why, what are we doing here? Like, I don't quite understand what this is all about. The moment you put that man and, and he'd reach in and pull out a scuffed up golf ball. This is a guy who ran a golf ball, you know, ran a golf company. He essentially right. had more access to, to free golf right. balls. He would still reach in and play a scuffed up golf ball. And, uh, and he had this tiny, his little five wood was about the size of a, of a, of a, a pound note. I mean, the head was so small. That guy could stick that thing from anywhere. And so he was never out of a hole and he would play so hard and he cared so much. And uh, and and he would grind in a putt. He had an Artie Palmer type stance, you know, knees bent Knee forward, the, yeah, punched toe. over, right. yep. elbow yep. sort of stuck out. And he had an 88-13 putter, you know, oh, very wow. similar to Palmer's 88-02. Um, so Bondi was just like that guy, but he wasn't, there was no meanness about him. Right. He was just funny and he was articulate and he had every quip. And at the time, as you know, in tennis, you didn't say things to people across the net. It was what, what right. you did. You tried to be a jerk to them across the net. And tennis was right. a very different world. Golf yeah. was a gentleman's game. Bondi wouldn't cheat ever, wouldn't consider yeah. it. But he would absolutely do anything he could to knock you off your game. Yeah. And, yeah. and, he, and it worked. Okay. It, 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 that's so. exactly that's exactly the image that that came through to me um so um yeah and just tremendous i mean i i can't say enough about the book i so enjoyed reading it it's so well done and um anyone who loves golf and particularly for people who've played in the uk and played some of these courses and just the whole feel of it um and and um you know going out late at night um, I'm, I'm going to forget which course it was, but there was wet one course you guys wanted to par that hole. You kept playing it over and over again. It's getting dark. Yep. You can barely tell what, what, you know, where the balls are. I mean, those are great memories, right? 
It was, well, we, we had played 36. It's a Makarahanish, and it's okay. the best opening hole of the world. And it, it's just a, you know, it's a top 100 course in the world. It's just a phenomenal place. Well, you know, the clubhouse is essentially a bar. And we're sitting in the bar having our, we've already had one round of those ham and cheese toasties and platters yes. of fries. Yep. Yep. And, you know, and Caffrey's Irish ale. And then we've gone back out and played 18. And then somebody's like, you know, so who part number one? You know, one guy's hand raised up and it's like, no, no, you hit a ball in the ocean. You know, you did not part. <laughs> okay. And so, and he didn't even bother going back out with us, but three of us went back out, Mark Harris being one of them, um, you know, who's another lawyer at Latham. Um, and the three of us went back out and I won't tell you what happened, but we took you know, multiple shots at this thing, you know, yes. starting at about nine o'clock at night and we'd play one and 18 and then eventually we'd stop playing 18, coming back. We'd just go back out, just play yeah, one, one, walk right. back, play one again, and do it. And uh, you know, I'll uh, I'll I'll leave alone. I'll I'll leave it to you as to figure out what happened. But you can read the book. So. And it's one of the many great parts of the book. I love that story. Um, I got I got to go back to Doorknock. So you have a place there. So how much time do you spend there? Well, um, first of all. The good news is I don't have a, I don't have a wife who will be listening to this podcast because I don't have a wife. Um, so I, I don't have to be dishonest with you on that level. Um, I actually I would say I probably go there. I'd say four weeks a year, maybe or something like that. Maybe you're right now. Okay. Um, it's probably a I go over and get 10 days. Then I'll get four or five days. Then I get another 10 days. So and then I'm going to probably this year spend uh, I probably guess maybe six weeks in total. I'm going back over for Christmas with my daughters. Okay. Um, so we'll do, and Christmas in the Scottish Highlands is really, really nice. I bet um, it is. It's I very, very, neat. you know, if you've got snow and, and Scotland is not a Christmassy place. It's a holiday place. It's more of a new year place. Right. Um, they, they don't, they don't really celebrate Christmas the way we think about it. The English do, uh, the Scots don't, uh, the Scots are all about, um, new year's Eve. And, um, uh, so that's a big thing. So it's it's a fun it's a fun place to be. So I, I'm there a lot. I play a lot. Brora is actually my favorite course to play up there. Okay. Um, it's got wild. You know, you've got basically Longhorn, high, you know, Highland cows walking around the course. You've got sheep all over the place. It's golf from the 1910s. Um, you know, you're just back out playing old school golf. And so I mix. I just alternate between Brora and Dory almost every round. Wow. Um, and, and you mentioned and a Sunningdale. And it's a 400-year-old house. So it's a... Oh, it's wow. A wow. That's yeah. cool. And you mentioned, so and Sunningdale, you'd sort of tee it up every now and then. I heard Sunningdale when you were going through I, course. Well, it's it's on the all-airport league, okay? So it's uh, it's about <laughs> 17, it's 17 minutes. It and Port Marnock are within 15 to 20 minutes of Dublin and Heathrow. Um, right. So you basically, you can land... You can be, you can land, shower, have breakfast, and be on the course at by seven thirty or eight in the morning after an international flight, and um, then have lunch and get back on a plane and go up to Dornick. So I, I do that on my way in and out of Dornick and play Fantastic. either Port Martin. So I love bad. it. Uh, no, it's not bad at all. Um, and um, haven't played Sunningdale. I have played Port Marnock. Those par threes were impossible. I remember that. I'm forgetting which hole yes. it was. There's that one that's right near the beach. I just remember it being 15. super difficult. Okay, that's it, yeah. 
Larry, it's it's not difficult. It's functionally impossible. Okay, it's one of those holes. <laughs> it's you know, it's it's that you know, it, it, a lot of people get the moniker of you know the short you know the, the the shortest bar five in the world or something like that. But that's one of those holes that there is no place to miss, and there's right. a lot of wind, and it's long, yeah. and it's a long, it's a 180 yard shot. So right. it's not that's even, right. it's not like you're trying to hit a little wedge in there. Right. You're hitting a, a big shot, and right. uh, and and the green is domed, and it slopes off wildly to the left. And I remember the that right. Front and the beach to the right. So it's Port, but Port Marnock is a phenomenal course, Larry. I'd love to go play Sunningdale with you. Um, a day at Sunningdale with the old course and the new course, they're very different. They're both legitimate top hundred world, you know, top fifty world type courses, um, and. Sunningdale Old is just pure. Every I hole bet. is different. Every I hole bet. Different. I bet. I don't have the golf. I'm going to turn around here. I don't have the golf library you do, um, although I have a lot, um, including yep. your book now. But but you probably well, know I appreciate it. I'd like that to be sort of more front and center, Larry. Or you can buy multiple copies because it actually looks very good together, okay, next to each other. I don't know if you've seen this one, the Anthony Edwards uh, book uh, of – of you, I'm sure I've, you I've know. got it. I've got it everywhere. Everywhere I go, I've got a copy of that book. That's a I've beautiful. I've got every every book he has done. So I've got he's done the Midwest golf clubs in the U.S. He's done the East Coast, and of course he's done Ireland and the U.K. And I always think of Sunningdale. He's got such fantastic photos of what the yeah. clubhouse is like and everything in there. So um, that's a that's a cool one to be sure. Well, Larry, I I will. I will pay, and this is a rare moment where you're going to get me out of match play mode, but if you par 15, 16, 17, and 18 each, okay, wine's on me, okay? That's, uh, that's, that's not something that happens very often. Very few people do all four. It's, uh, a lot of people can go out and shoot a very nice number, but they just can't par all four of those holes. I, I, have, I have no doubt. And, and, I, and I just have to touch one other thing you mentioned because I – Totally agree with you. I've only played County Down once, um, yeah. and um, I thought it was spectacular. Um, and I don't know that I played. It sounds like you have its number. You play well there. I had I I thought it was real that front nine especially. Um, and we played it at a point in time when the gorse was in full bloom. And yeah. I mean, it just the whole setting with the mountains in the background and the sea, and it, that's one of the most spectacular. I, I mean, I for me. And you've played a lot more courses than I have. I've had the good fortune. I'm trying to think. You know, I played Cypress. I've played Pine Valley. They're both fabulous. County Down was just special to me. I mean, I just I thought that was just fantastic. It, County Down is if you can drive the ball straight. If you don't drive the ball straight, County Down is not going to be a lot of fun. You're going to have a tough. No, that's true. Um, but if you drive the ball, if you can aim over a rock and hit it up in the air over a rock, you're going to find it. Yeah, and you're going to have a green complex that's reasonably receptive to, to iron shots. That's, that's the nice part. That's so true. it's sort of a kind of course that you're going to play, and you should play well. But it's got a lot of wind there, and the scenic beauty there is just shocking. It, it it's is. just you get there like uh, it's hard to get better. And uh, you know, to me, um, Taraiti in New Zealand is the other course that's just so much more beautiful than almost anything else you'll ever play that, you know, when you play Tara Edie, you sort of look and say, uh, golf is almost secondary 
except for the fact that every hole is phenomenal. Um, yeah, you know, it's you know. it's funny. So I'm here in L.A. and I've got a, a buddy at the at, at Brentwood where I belong who works a lot with Rick Kane. And, you know, yep. he's been over Tariti and he's he's waxed eloquently about it, as I know you do. And um, I have not made the trip to New Zealand for that. I mean, I've vacationed there. I haven't golfed there, but um, it sounds unbelievable and it looks unbelievable for sure. Well, it's first of all, the contributions, if, if you look at what's happened in modern day golf, and I, I don't mean to digress here. In sort no, of please way. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, but if you think about evolving from, you know, from essentially sand hills and abandoned dunes, yeah. you know, two guys who came in, you know, Young's Cap and Kaiser came in and built these just monuments yeah. that completely broke the mold. Totally. Of what was happening before that? Totally. And then a guy like Rick Kane goes to Tariidi. He could have done a lot of weird things, and instead he builds. He took. He combined shockingly high levels of taste with a, frankly, shockingly high levels of money. And that's not <laughs> always the case. I mean, we've had we've had some. You know, I can I can think of some recent examples of maybe they're playing courses that you know playing at his course this week. Um, yes. Uh, yes. Where people don't yes. combine great taste yes. with with money. And yeah. Rick Kane does. And yeah. Rick Kane is just so elegant. And the course reflects his elegance. Yeah. The clubhouse is understated, but perfect in every detail. It sits, it's slow slung. It fits. I mean, it respects the Maori culture. And right. the course itself, I mean, if you told me name my favorite whole Tariti, I'd, I'd have 17 of them named before. I'm done. And it, that could, but I'm going to suggest that you wait, that you wait until Teari Lynx comes online. Yeah, the other one. Right. You're gonna, yeah. You're going to feel stupid flying all the way there, playing one, and then have to fly back, you know, years later to do it again. So, yeah. and as That's... an L.A. guy, you have no excuse. <laughs> well, you're, I, I, I hear you. I hear you. So let's um, let me. And so the book is fantastic. I can't encourage people enough to read it. It's one for the memory banks. Let's talk a little bit about kind of your post Wilson or post Amher sports life. Cause you stayed in the industry. So kind of went where into apparel a little bit, right? I know you were involved with Peter Millar and, mm -hmm. and, and, and some other things, maybe just talk about that. Cause you've kind of stayed in golf, although obviously Peter Millar is a lot broader than golf, but um, it may talk about your experiences there if you would. Well, it was, uh, you know, the, the nice thing is, you know, Wilson was one of my companies, but we were actually Amer Sports, which is Wilson, Atomic, Solomon, Sunto, Arcteryx. There are several brands. Um, yeah. And uh, so it it's actually has a big apparel component to it. I happen to love hard goods and I love technology and love selling tech. Um, but I got involved in a couple of companies in apparel and did pretty well with them. And I started a private equity firm because basically... You know, when I was at, at, at Amer, when I started in my role, you know, we had a market cap of like, you know, 250 million bucks. And when I left, it was like 1.3 billion. And I'm like, I'm one of the top five guys. Uh, I should have gotten more than a bonus, you know, for this. Uh, <laughs> you know, and I, thought, I I think I need to be doing this on my own account as opposed yeah, to doing yeah. it some other way. And, I, and I'm not a greedy person and I don't do things for money. I do things, but I don't mind if the money flows that way. Um, yeah. you know, after the fact. And so I started a PE firm and managed to, you know, essentially became very close. And I would describe my role as I'm, I was an excellent caddy um, 
for the CEO, Scott Mahoney at Peter Millar. So I was the chairman of Peter Millar during its hyper growth stage. Um, and then we had a phenomenal result um, out of that, you know, phenomenal exit. And uh, it was great. And at the time when we left, you know, Scott and I were very close, Scott Mahoney. Yeah. Um, and I just sort of said, listen, I'm never going to disrespect our amazing time here. We had a great run. It was a good you know, four and a half year run. I don't want to disrespect that in any way, shape or form by going and doing something that was copycat. And uh, so I looked around, and I thought, what could I invest in that would be something similar? So I tried to buy Arcteryx from Amer Sports and they called, they laughed. They were like, if you're buying, we're not selling. And, uh, <laughs> and I was like, uh, then sell me 49% and, and I'll happily, I'll go, you know, I'll go crazy with it. And they thought about that and then we didn't, it didn't come to fruition. So a brand called Shoes came up and it's KJUS. And this is my shameless plug. It makes bar none the finest ski apparel on the planet. There's nothing close to it. It's uh, stretchy. Uh, it, it, it helps the body essentially perform at optimum levels, no matter what the temperatures are. So you basically... It's going to either wick moisture away, add warmth. It's super lightweight. It's super stretchy, the whole thing. And I reached out to the, to the guy and said, listen, you know, here's what I was at Peter Millar. Right. Would you like me? And he's like, we'd love to have you invest, you know, essentially become the lead investor of the company. And at the time they had zero goal. And so I got lucky um, again. It's sort of like getting to be you know, Nicholas's caddy and then, then, then Tiger's caddy, a woman named Brooke McKenzie who's just one of the finest executives on the planet. Um, and I, you know, she's, she runs the company, but I was maybe, you know, I certainly had a helping hand. I maybe helped select a few clubs here and there. Um, she hit the shots, but together we went out and built a pretty powerful uh, golf brand. And, uh, you know, and we were able to, in a, in a pretty short period of time, turn into a cult brand that's now no longer cult. It's now pretty, it's getting bigger. Um, it is. It absolutely and, is. And we're focused heavily on just making the finest rain gear and then the finest quilted warmth where we have a weight to warmth, a weight to warmth ratio that's astounding. We want extreme stretch in our products. Our things are designed to last for multiple years. And they basically allow you to play golf as if you're not wearing anything, but you could be as warm or as cool as you need to be. And now we've brought in a hot weather whole collection that's designed to make you cooler when you play in hot weather temperatures. So for you at Brentwood, uh, Larry, we can talk about that as well. Um, but that's, that's the fun part. And I've just had a, like just an amazingly lucky life. Um, you know, I get to do stuff like this for, and then somebody actually pays me. Um, so that's, that, that's, that's not a bad deal at all. So um, talk about what you're doing these days. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the apparel company, but you're living in Colorado now. Um, right. So, I mean, you're yep. playing, I mean, I mean, you must be playing golf there as well, right? Well, I, I play, I play golf in Colorado, but not nearly as much, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have, you know, I have too many memberships. I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be frank. And I apologize. Yeah, me, I hope you're not going to tell me you violate the 14 club. Rule. No, I do not. I do not violate the 14 club rule, but I'm, 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 it's only because I'm, I'm taking the occasional club and throwing it out. 
Okay, I'm getting rid of. Am some I costs. talking to the Jimmy Dunn of Colorado here? Is you this are I'm not doing? talking to Jimmy Dunn. First of all, Jimmy Dunn is 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 a god in terms of those levels. Uh, I'm I'm a guy who basically has done reasonably well with a fair amount of courses. Um, and but you know, it's I'm also a kind of person that if somebody's starting a course and they care a lot about it, I'm more than inclined to say yes, I'll join. So I joined the Lido. For example, I, I was a founder of Sand Valley. I'm a member of Tari Edi. I'm at Teari Links. So I'm at a bunch of places that don't make a ton of geographic sense, at least in my current life, uh, but they will. And uh, I do spend a lot of time traveling around and going to them. So that's fantastic. I, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of put it that way. Golf is one of my passions. Um, having great golf courses to play and playing golf with great people is about as much fun as I can have. And, I think I think it comes through in the book. It it totally comes through in the book, and 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 you mentioned this in the podcast earlier, and you mentioned the book too. I mean, when you say, and I I really was stri- struck me as when I read this is, you know, because I play rounds. You know, I have people out to Brentwood. It maybe even just be the two of us, and we'll just take a caddy, carry double, and walk eighteen holes. And someone you know who doesn't know golf might say, "Well, Jesus, four hours. It's just the two of you. What do you talk about?" And you know what? It, you never run out of things to say. It's just, it, that's the nature <laughs> of the game. It's just, it's just, you talk about all sorts of stuff. It's one, you know, and everyone, you know, you're not looking at your cell phone, you know, you're, you're there, you're not behind your computer yeah. screen. And it's a wonder, but I, now more than ever where, you know, everyone's constantly, you know, looking at your computer screen or your cell phone stuff to be out there and just sort of enjoy, you know, being outside four hours, I never run out of things to say, and it sounds like you're in the same boat. Well, I, and, and I love hearing what other people have to say um, because I, I find that I don't learn much when my mouth is moving. So it's <laughs> nice to actually, it's nice to have someone else say something. And I'm like, wait, what did you say? And yeah. a lot of times guys look at me and go, what do you mean? I'm like, hang on, that, what you just said is fascinating. Would you mind giving me some more data? Absolutely. And people will frequently go, are you serious? You want to know about the, you know, the, the mating habits of a hunting hummingbird? I'm like, who knows about this kind of stuff? Um, so yeah, um, you know, I, I, I guess as, as it comes through, I do enjoy. And I think, I think that's part of what makes golf so much fun is you also meet a lot of interesting people. Totally. And, and you know, on about the second hole, whether you want to play any more golf with them or not. That, that, that is, that is also very, very true. Um, hey, Luke, this has been great um, catching up with you. Again, the name of the book, um, for those who haven't read it, and I can't recommend it highly enough, One for the Memory Banks um, by Luke Reese, edited by Madeline Reese, as we talked about, um, and uh, your, your, your skillful editor and your daughter. Um, and uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and it's a wonderful gift you gave to people about your experiences with Bondi over all these great links courses, what it's like to play some of those um, just fascinating places and, and so good that you did that. Um, the pandemic, one of, one of the positives of the pandemic, right? You had the time to sort of put it all together. That was exactly right. Thank, Larry, thank you so much. It's been a, a real pleasure. I love listening to your podcast. Um, and uh, I think, you know, it's, it's just, it's great and to me, giving back in these kind of ways is sort of is, is a fantastic thing. And hopefully, um, you know, I just um, I'm not sure if there's a second book in me. I'm not sure if I'll keep writing it. I have written a bunch of short stories. They're on the they're on my on my on my uh, 
website page for the book itself. So if you want to read a bunch of random, random little uh, three, three page musings, you can feel free to do that as well. Um, so I tend to follow the tour and write something that has nothing to do with the tour um, at their, at their tour stop. So enjoy it. And Larry, thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. And I do look forward to us playing, uh, at some point. Um, and, um, I, I no longer think of you as Larry, the incredibly talented tax guy. Okay. Larry, the golf guy, my new moniker. Thank you, buddy. Great talking. Thanks. To you.